in the reading corner today, highly anticipated uh, conversation with Malcolm Duffy. I've been so keen to get him into the reading corner for a while now, having loved his first two novels and been completely blown away by the third novel, Read Between the Lies, which is the book that we're going to be discussing mainly today. In fact, it has a title that could be read two ways, and that's highlighted by the typography on the front cover, Read Between the Lines or Read Between the Lies. I think maybe I should ask Malcolm to kick us off how he would read that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nikki. Um, I would read it as Read Between the Lies, but I don't mind if some people actually read it as Read Between the Lines, because I think there's a bit of ambiguity in the story, and and, and, and I quite like that, the fact that what is the story about? There are certainly lies within the story, but, you know, it's a, it's a well-known English phrase, read between the lines, that things aren't quite what they seem. So I really quite like that ambiguity in the title, and I don't mind if people go for either one. I think it's probably the only book that I've read that has a title that can be read in two ways like that. So it's pretty unique, and I absolutely love it. But I think we have to start off. It's, it, there, there are two boys to, uh, who are the main characters, Ryan and Tommy, and I think we have to start with them. And maybe a way in is to hear something from the very beginning of the book, which will set it up for us. When I first started thinking about the story, I thought I wanted to knew I wanted to write about dyslexia, but I thought, what, how am I going to enter that story? And I thought it'd be quite interesting to have two characters who are both dyslexic two boys but one of the boys has really come to terms with it it's, it's not a problem for him at all he's going on through his life and the other boy it's really a, a hidden secret he hasn't really come to terms with it in fact he doesn't really understand that he is dyslexic and I thought there was a really nice contrast there because in a way it reflects the world we live in that you know they say that as many as one in ten people are dyslexic but many of those will be undiagnosed they don't even know sometimes until really late on in life um, so I thought it was really interesting to create these two characters. Um, so what I'd like to do is read the first chapter of the book. And this features the young boy, Ryan. And he's the boy who he knows he's dyslexic, but he's come to terms with it. He's had it diagnosed and it's not really interfering in his life in, in, in a major way. And Ryan and Tommy come from two different parts of the country. That's something else I like to do in my in my books is explore the British Isles and the and the breadth of language and, and people that you get. Um, and Ryan comes from Northumberland in the northeast. I'm from Newcastle originally, a Geordie. But this first chapter, it's called New Arrival, and this is told from the viewpoint of Ryan. I'm 45% scared, 45% excited. The other 10% is confusion. I wouldn't feel any of these things if I was just passing through. But he isn't, he's staying, thanks to them and their situation, which is now our situation. Why did they have to go and do something so permanent? They didn't even bother asking me what I thought, just went ahead and did it. My opinion, as usual, is worth less than an empty milk carton. Get a shuffle on, shouts Dad. I stand, staring into my open wardrobe. Not something I do very often. I normally sit side on clothes in milliseconds sometimes even faster. But today, I decided to choose carefully, let him know what I'm like, who he's dealing with. After much rummaging, I find the perfect thing. Ryan hollers, Dad. Once he gets above a certain level, I know it's time to move. A loud voice is usually as bad as it gets, maybe a glare, sometimes a stump. 
what in God's name have you been doing up there? He says, as I'm on my way downstairs, getting ready. He lets fly a huff. She's waiting by the front door, looking anxious, fiddling with her cuff. We can't be late, Ryan, she says, exasperated. Not today. Can't see how a few more minutes is going to make much difference. Certainly not to him. She sets the alarm, locks up when we climb into Dad's car. He starts the engine, and she puts her hand on his. Together, they find first gear. They look at each other and smile, trying to reassure each other that everything will be all right, which it probably won't. We move off. Dad's car normally smells of damp socks and heat rub. Today, it smells as though we crashed into a cosmetics department. She's made an extra large effort for the new arrival. Never seen her go to church, but if she did, imagine this is how she'd look. Tweed jacket, long skirt, smart shoes, earrings, pearls, hair neat and tidy. Considering where we're going, it seems a total waste of time. She is Dad's girlfriend. Way too old to have one of those. The term should cease to apply after 50. She's not a girl and is far more than a friend. The people who write dictionaries should work on that. You okay, sweet? asks Dad. That's new. Never heard him call ma'am that. Called her a few other words. The type that would get you in trouble. But that was mainly at the end. I'm fine, Mark, she says, smiling at him. I think he wants to smile back, but there's a busy junction coming up and he's driving way faster than usual. Can feel me insides being squeezed like a damp towel. Not sure what the knot's doing there. I'm not the one who's done anything wrong. Okay, Ryan. She asks me that a lot. Always give her the same answer. I, which is a lie so large it's borderline obese. I was okay before this happened. Stare out of the window at the houses. Bet the people in them don't have a life like mine, where things have turned upside down. All they've got to worry about is what to have for dinner. She glances nervously at her watch. I've definitely made them late. A bit bad. We're getting closer. I can tell by the way that her fidgeting has gone up a level. Must be weird for her, but it's weird for me too. I can see it up ahead, the squat brown building. A shiver finds me spine. Dad flicks his indicator. The car turns. There in front of us. HM Young Offenders Institution, Felton. Mm. There's so many different things that I want to pick up from that introduction, including the title, actually, New Arrival. Was it your idea to write this as though it could have been written by somebody with dyslexia? It's spelled N-W-E, and then Arrival is A-R-R-V-A-I-L. Yeah, it was something that um, I've actually been involved with a dyslexia charity called Nessie. And it's, it's something that they do. And it's actually very tension grabbing. They, they post a lot on, on Twitter and other social media. Um, and they quite often write things in dyslexia type so that somebody who is non-dyslexic can still read it, but they get an impression of what it's like to be dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I wanted to do with the book, because obviously I want people who are dyslexic to read it as well. But non-dyslexics quite often think, well, what's it like? What does type look like? And this is one thing that can happen where it's going to be jumbled up so obviously if you were to read the write the whole book like that it'd be pretty hard for a non-dyslexic to read but I wanted to write the chapter headings with the words jumbled up a bit but so mm-hmm. that you could still read them and I think it's I think it's a technique that I'm quite pleased with and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad I did it because it, it just gives a, a little glimpse into the world of what it's like to be dyslexic. So we learn that uh, Tommy the older of the two boys he's 17 Ryan's 16 He's um, in this Young Offenders Institution. He's just coming out on licence. He's been told that he's got to keep out of trouble. 
Whether he can do that or not, uh, we have to read into the story to find out. What's the relationship between these two boys like? I think it begins up in the story is very, very fractious because not only are they from different parts of the country, um, Ryan, his dad, has moved in with his new partner, Naomi, and, and Tommy is Naomi's son. So he's been brought to a different part of the country. He's, he's now living down south, and he's now, I guess, forced against his will to live in a house with another teenage boy who he doesn't know and you know doesn't, doesn't understand. So there's this, I guess, rubbing each other up the wrong way and, and are quite different personalities. Ryan is a bit of a bookworm, you know, he's, he's obviously a, a bright boy, you know, does well at school, you know, shoes are polished. And, and I guess Tommy is in some ways the black sheep of the family. He's obviously been to Felton um, Young Offenders, so he's done something pretty bad. So they're a bit chalk and cheese in a way, but as the story progresses, they realise they have more in common than they realise, that they're actually both dyslexic, they, 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 they share that. And as we go on through the story, we really realise that they do grow to like each other. And there are, there are commonalities in their stories. So they, they, they have, I guess, like a lot of people, they have more in common than they think. But mm-hmm. the start, I wanted them to be, you know, I guess, you know, poles apart in a way. Um, and something else I wanted to do with the book, which I've never done before, is write each alternate chapter from their viewpoint. But it's all sequential. So it's not like you're, you're jumping through time frames as well. But Again, it was quite a challenge, but it was quite a fun challenge in a way to, with every different chapter, you've got a different boy's viewpoint on the story and what is happening in their world. So that, that was quite a fun challenge to set myself up. A different viewpoint, uh, but how different are their voices? Yeah, obviously there's the, there's the language one. Ryan is, speaks in a, I guess, a gentle Geordie accent because not everyone has very broad dialect. And Tommy is from down south. But... Ryan sort of, I think, is more outspoken and he, he he sort of speaks his mind. And Tommy, I guess, is the cooler of the two. He sort of, I guess, internalises things a bit more. He, he's quieter and, you know, he's, he is a girlfriend as well that, you know, he, he'd like to get back with. So, yeah, I, I think I, I spend a lot of time in making sure that, the, that they were very different in their own way, although they have mm. dyslexia, that they were strong characters and, and, mm. and had characteristics that separate them chapter mm. by chapter. I think I would describe it as a sort of awkward tenderness that develops between them. Uh, Ryan clearly looks up to Tommy and, you know, even when he's lying on his bed, he says, you know, lying on my bed like Tommy, you know, that, so that kind of gives a sense of yeah. him looking up to this boy who's only a year older than he is. Exactly. And and I think it's something that I see in my teenage daughters and other teens that I come across is that not necessarily hero worship, but sometimes people want to be some someone else. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be quite interesting in this case if Ryan, who's a bit of a goody two-shoes, actually would like to be a bit more like Tommy, who's a bit of a rebel and has been in trouble. And Tommy would like to be a bit more like Ryan. And that manifests itself in the story where Ryan tries to or wants to do things that are actually a bit bad mm. and Tommy wants to do the opposite he wants to get on and study and learn to you know, read and write and, and do better at school not only for himself but for his mum who's obviously upset a lot by going into into young offenders mm. so I, th- I thought that was a really interesting dynamic to explore and also the fact that he ends up in this young offending institution is not disconnected from his dyslexia and we know that there are a lot of young people in 
prisons or similar institutions who have difficulties with literacy. There are connections there. Yes, they say that illiteracy is the big common denominator in prison. As many as 50% of prison inmates and young offenders are either illiterate or have dyslexia, which is incredible, really. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to make the book about that, but I think in in a way it explains a lot about Tommy's behaviour, although we don't go into great detail about what he did or what his Mm -hmm. past was. I wanted to give a nod to that because I think what happens in real life is that a lot of people in school whose dyslexia isn't um, diagnosed quite often, you know, end up being excluded from school or bullied or become bullies themselves. And you can ima- you can see how, if that's not dealt with, they could easily drift into a world of crime because they can't mm. find a job, because they can't read, and there's this sort of downward spiral. Mm. Uh, not saying that all people with dyslexia will end up going down that path, but in circumstances you can see how it can. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, education comes off in you show both sides of it in this story. Is it Miss Brighton, who is yeah. Ryan's teacher? She understands yeah. about dyslexia. He gets the help that he needs. It's more visible. Yeah. Tommy's is hidden, partly yeah. because people are very good at finding yeah. coping strategies. Yes. And he's been to four different schools. Yeah. And his mother takes him back to the school that she's paying for now. And... Um, they won't have him back. Yeah, I, again, I didn't want to make the story too preachy, but I wanted it to reflect real life because uh, I've spoken to a lot of teachers and a lot of experts in this area, and there can be a bit of a lottery. I think in some schools, there are people who have dyslexia training and, and they try and spot things as soon as possible. And there are other schools where, for whatever reason, it's not really dealt with. And in fact, the one of the charities I've worked with, Nessie, their big thing is to try and get dyslexia training into every school and that there should be a specialist in it, and certainly primary schools, because as they say, the younger this is dealt with, the easier it is to deal with, and that the longer you leave it, I guess, like lots of things in life, the harder it is. Um, It's something that I personally feel needs dealing with, because my own daughter has dyslexia, um, Tallulah, and she wasn't diagnosed until she reached secondary school. And her reading has improved and her writing has improved massively. So maybe we'll, we were lucky in that, that, that we found someone mm-hmm. or that the school did that. But I guess there are lots and thousands of, of students and people out there mm-hmm. who aren't dealt with and they just go undiagnosed and they're either seem to be stupid or slow or not as bright as, as they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can impact massively on their lives. Absolutely. I mean, coming back to the story for a moment, because there's some really exciting moments in this story, and there are some shocks uh, to be had as well. Ryan, is, as we've said, wants to be a bit like Tommy, and he has offered to teach Tommy to read. In return, he wants something, and what he wants more than anything is to learn to drive. And Tommy agrees reluctantly, it has to be said, because he really does want to stay on the straight and narrow Can you just tell us a little bit about what happens? Tommy really doesn't want to help at all. But after much, much pressure, and because Ryan is helping Tommy to read, he finally relents and says, OK, well, I'll I'll teach you to drive, but we've got to find a quiet car park. And he manages to get hold of a car from a friend of a friend. And it's a Sunday morning and all all is quiet and all is going, you know, incredibly well and thinks, oh, well, that's fine. And when Ryan, you know, 
he says, you know, can I, we go one more time up the car park? And, and Tommy says, okay, then. Um, and they're driving and another car appears and Ryan panics a bit. And, and again, it's something I discovered about a lot of dyslexics. They mis- mistake their left and their right. Um, and of course, you can guess the inevitable is going to happen. And Tommy's saying, go left, go left, when, when he means turn right. Mm-hmm. Ryan listens to him, which he shouldn't do. And they, they they crash into this into this other car, which obviously is a tragedy for both of them. Not only Ryan, he's a goody two shoes, but also for Tommy, who's um, on license, is not meant to do anything wrong. So they both do a runner and and get into big trouble. But yeah, it's quite dramatic. Um, but it shows re- really how they've almost gone too far in helping each other. It highlights that. People do bad things out of good intention. They really do. And I suppose if I was to distill it into just a few words, I would say life is complicated. That's what I like to do with my stories. Give my protagonist problems. You know, the more problems you can throw at them, the better. Um, but, you know, like life is complex. You know, but, you know I, I say that to my two teenage daughters that, you know, they've had varying issues and 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 I said look that's what life's gonna ha- you know you're gonna have more issues throughout life and you know and there are, there are complexities it's and it's how you deal with them that, that is the real thing and it's you know you've got to do it with fortitude and with your eyes wide open and and you also need to speak to people I think that's a common theme throughout my books that characters mm. tend to do things and don't tell they don't tell the right people at the right time what they're doing mm. I'm not going to say what other things occur in the story but I I think one of the things that I really appreciated this isn't preachy in terms of talking to teenagers because the adults are very fallible too and I really think that that's possibly the most important lesson that we can pass on to young people is that grown-ups adults mess up just as much and they have to learn from it too Exactly. We're, we're all fallible. We've all got feet of clay. No one is perfect. You know, when I give talks in school, I always say, look, in this room, there's 100 people or whatever. There's no one 100% bad. And there's no one 100% good. You know, there's variations of the two. And, you know, as parents, me and my wife, we try to set a good example. But, you know, we sometimes fall off that particular horse. And, and you know, you've, you've got to climb back on it and, and, and try and set as good an example as you can. But as the mm-hmm. as the book shows, all of the adult characters in it make mistakes of varying degrees, um, and they have to learn from it, and and so do the children around them as well. I think it becomes very evident just how skillfully crafted this is, because um, a lot of those things to me now seem to be seeding what comes later. So I don't know whether that uh, just came in a flow or whether you had to go back and, and, you know, craft it in that way. They actually say, is it easy reading, is hard writing? And, and I'm a great believer in that, that I like the stories. And it's some ways to be an, e- an easy read in that, and then it flows. For me, everything is about the flow of the story and that everything has to come together. But that involves a lot of rewrites and a lot of drafts and a lot of exploring each character, the weight you put behind each character, where they appear, what role do they play? Because um, I've written a few screenplays in my time, and 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 you actually learn a lot from that when you're, when you're writing stories. And, and there's one great thing is that what is each chapter delivering? And and, and I think that's always a great thing. They say that with every scene in a, a film or piece of drama, what is it delivering? What is the purpose of it? And, and there's one rule of screenwriting which I think is great. It's that every scene should either 
move the plot on in some demonstrable way, or you should learn something about a character. And I actually think that's a great bit of advice for writers. Sometimes when I'm writing a character, sometimes I've just got people talking, go, well, where's this going? <laughs> Have we learned anything about the character, something new? And you go, well, that, that is worth having place. Or has the plot moved on? Or is it just more of the same? But mm. if it's more of the same, it's got to stop. Mm. Um, so as when I went through the book and all the drafts, I made, tried to make sure that each chapter, like that first chapter that you've heard, quite a lot happens in that. You learn a lot about Ryan. And also there's a big plot set up as well. It's something that as a writer, I feel I must do. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, slave over that. And hopefully eventually after draft, after draft, after draft, it, it all comes together and see and comes across as seamless, although at times yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. And I was reflecting on your final lines in chapters. Often people talk about first lines, getting people interested, grabbing their attention. Or they sometimes talk about ending a chapter on a cliffhanger. You do have some cliffhangers in there, but actually the final lines that are not cliffhangers are really interesting. So the one, for instance, when um, Tommy is in his old school, Hamilton with his mum and the head is there, he's been having a conversation with his wife about what they're going to have for dinner. And it ends just with enjoy your chicken pie. Yeah. And it says so much, you know, the final line. I love a good final line. Oh, I do as well. well my, my background's advertising copywriting. So, so not that I'm writing slogans, but I'm always thinking, yes, you've always got to leave on a, on a really good point or not necessarily a, a clever, clever line, but just something that's very poignant like that. Enjoy your chicken pie. Because, again, that, that was a scene I, I toyed around with. Should there be violence? Should, should there be something else? And, and in some ways, subtlety is better. Sometimes just a mm. just a quiet phrase does the job brilliantly, as opposed to something big and dramatic or shouting or you know or whatever. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there was another one, and it came exactly halfway through the book. I think they've been going to look at a new house, and the final line talks about Tommy going off to look around more empty rooms, and to me, that felt like a a metaphor for their family, this house with its empty rooms. And through this story, they've got to somehow fill their rooms, not just their physical rooms, but as a family, they've got to fill their rooms. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think that I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because, again, I think it shows how adults and, and I guess young adults view things like houses, like there's this empty house. And the mum and dad are getting so excited about it because they can see the potential. And Tommy and Ryan just see empty rooms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they can't see that future, the one that Naomi and Mark are, are trying to build together. And mm -hmm. I think empty rooms is quite a good metaphor for this family because there is a lot of emptiness. And, you know, emptiness could be seen as potential or emptiness mm -hmm. could be seen as a bad thing. And yeah. I think it's something nice to draw on just those those little touches and, and what something yeah. like an empty room means to, means to different people. Yeah. Something else that I really appreciated in your writing, I don't know if it comes because you have written screenplay, but there's a lot of direct free speech. And because of that, this whole idea of reading between the lines or reading between the lies, you know, the whole way in which it's written allows those things to exist. Yes, I guess it's a thought stolen from screenwriting. Uh, William Golding, I was Butch Casting, the Sundance Kid. 
he always said, start the scene late and leave it early, which is, again, something I try to bring into my writing is to, to, to pare things down, pare the dialogue down. Don't always start at the obvious point and don't always leave at the obvious point because you can let your reader fill in an awful lot. And I think as as I progress through through my three books, I'd like to think I've got better at that. And you've got to give your reader an awful lot of credit that they can work things out. You know, that in the first chapter, I could have talked a lot about that they knew who were going to prison or what Tommy had done. And I'd go, no, leave that to the imagination. Uh, in the story, and never actually say um, what Tommy did. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that was deliberate. Sometimes writing is what you leave out. <laughs> that sounds like counterintuitive because you think writing should be like filling pages with words. But sometimes the most important words are the ones that you leave to the reader's imagination to go, oh, what is happening there? Why did that character do that? Or why did they do that? And the, as a writer, I don't always explain that because that is like life. Sometimes people do things and you can't understand why. I like to put that element in, into my stories as well. So the, the narrative is written in the present tense. Yes. Was that just intuitive? Yeah, or was it a I choice? Just, yeah, I think the present tense gave it that sense of immediacy. I, mean, I did think of, you know, writing the past tense, but I think you get more tension by writing in the present, in the, in the first person. It, it's a style I like to. It's not say necessarily one I will always stick with, but I think for this particular story, I think it seemed to work very well. Yeah, it just seemed to keep that, I guess, that excitement and that intrigue going that you're sort of in the heads of these two teenage boys, each each telling their own story. Yeah, it, it just seemed to work. It's just an intuitive thing. Mm. Something that we um, haven't touched on is the the vulnerability of these two boys and the fact that there isn't much out there that has young, vulnerable male teenagers dealing with their emotional literacy. There's a fantastic bit where Ryan is crying and he says they're tears of joy. And you're thinking, I don't think they are. But then we go on. (laughs) They sort of are tears of joy for dad, tears of disappointment, tears of anger. It's all mixed up. And sometimes being able to separate all those things out and know how you're feeling is quite hard. Yeah, I think for teens, times are hard girls and boys and and I wanted to you know try and really get under the skin of what it's like to be a teenage boy um, who's in a in a somewhat dysfunctional family in a difficult situation and really tap into what their emotions what what are they really feeling and and you've touched upon that moment with Ryan where he he doesn't know quite why he is crying And and I really wanted to sort of tap into that with a you know teenage boy's who who I know and I've come across um, and tap into my own feelings from a while ago from when I was a teenage boy of, of what was like. And, and it can be a confused time when you're halfway between a child and an adult and you, you're a bit unsure of the world and, and unsure of yourself. Mm. So I just wanted to end by talking a little bit about Empathy Lab. Um, I know that the book was uh, chosen for yeah. um, the Empathy List I guess you were pleased that the book was... Oh, I was absolutely delighted, you know, to be chosen as as one of the books that's, you know, empathetic and and shows, I guess, the power of empathy, really, that, you know, we, 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 I guess we live in troubled times and the extent to which by being more thoughtful for others, you can make a better world, not only for others, but for yourself. Um, Mm. That's why, so I was absolutely delighted that the the book was chosen for that. Mm. 
Is there a sense in which all fiction develops empathy? I guess every book opens a door to someone else's world that perhaps, well, almost certainly you won't know about. So, yeah, I guess empathy plays a huge part in all books. I have to say that Read Between the Lies was one of my favourite books of the year. And I'm so pleased that I was able to talk to you today, Malcolm. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nikki. It's lovely talking to you too. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.